So we'll start at the beginning of this process. Uh, that with that very first process of establishing a practice and overcoming the tendency for the mind to wander for us to forget what we're doing. Uh, how many of you, is there anyone here that uh, hasn't meditated before or does not meditate regularly? others? All right, well, since there's one person here that hasn't meditated, were you? No. Okay. Then, then, uh, the next thing that I wonder is, uh, how many of you have been meditating long enough and successfully enough that uh, when you sit down to meditate, you don't have any problem at all with forgetting the meditation object or mind wandering. <laughs> okay, let me put that differently. <laughs> let me put that differently. How many of you do still experience forgetting mind wandering and having the, the, okay, So, in other words, what we're going to be talking about here from the beginning is going to be relevant to just about everyone. Okay, good. Now, so, let's first address the question of the meditation object and why we need one. Now, when I say meditation object, I don't mean the object of why we meditate. What I'm referring to is the is as a meditation object is whatever it is that for our particular practice we've chosen to be what we pay what we uh, direct our attention towards and there's many possible meditation objects as a matter of fact almost anything that you can think of that you could have consistently available for you to direct your attention to could serve as a meditation object because that's all you're looking for is something that that you can return your attention to. Now, the meditation object that uh, I prefer, uh, I suspect, is probably the most popular and commonly used meditation object in the world, and maybe throughout uh, at least the last 2,500 years of history, is the breath. And meditation object that I like to use is not the breath itself but rather the sensations that are produced by the breath. And you can feel sensations as a result of the body's breathing activity in several different places. Uh, the two places in your body where breathing activity produces the most uh, prominent sensations are in the area of the nose and abdomen. As the air passes in and out the nose, produces distinctive sensations. And this is the meditation object that I prefer the most. But uh, there are some people who, for one reason or another, have difficulty with using the sensations of breath at the nose. And so you can use the sensations of breath at the abdomen as the abdomen rises and falls. 
So why do we have a meditation object? And this is a good question because there are some meditation practices that don't involve uh, using a meditation object. For example, there is a very well-known Zen practice called just sitting, where you don't use a meditation object. So what I think you all are already quite aware of, even those of you that maybe are are just beginning and haven't meditated for very long, is the uh, level of activity of your mind and the way your mind moves from one thing to another. Um, If you were to just close your eyes and sit without an object, you would be aware of your mind sort of being in that, well, okay, what do I do now? And then after a short period of that, your mind will start doing what it always does, and it will pay attention to this, and then that, and then some other thing. As a matter of fact, why don't we do that for just maybe a short period of time, just a few minutes, just get comfortable and close your eyes, and don't use a meditation object. Just uh, see what it would be like to to, to experience your mind, see what it does.
don't mind me asking you, since you said you've never meditated before, would you care to describe what you experienced while sitting there? Yeah, <coughs> internal chatter. Medical bills, my friend is pregnant, um, I don't want to have kids. Um, <laughs> 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 yeah. A lot of stuff going on. <laughs> Was it interesting to watch your own mind? I mean, it's something that we don't often do. Not that we're unaware of what's going on in our mind, but to actually pay attention to it is, it can be a new and interesting experience. And that's really uh, the essence of meditation, is that we're learning to watch our own mind, but also to train our own mind. Would anybody else like to uh, offer what they experienced there? Yeah. Well, I had a <clears throat> don't think about the elephant experience because you said yes, don't contradict right, yes. right your breath. So Absolutely. I was yeah. that's where I was led. Yeah, that's right. Yes. You have you have this idea in your mind and it doesn't matter whether it's a do it or don't do it. <laughs> it's and I would imagine that a lot of you who are used to meditating with an object, it's really hard not to have your mind go to that object. Myself and going back to my breath. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, yeah. I was, as much as I was trying to concentrate subconsciously, I guess I was, I would start to meditate. I you know, concentrate on my object. Yeah, and that's because you've meditated uh, in the past, and as a result of that meditation, your mind has become trained to keep bringing the attention back to the breath, back to the meditation object. And that's that's a good thing. That's what we. That's one of the objectives of our training is to is to condition the mind so that you know that doesn't happen the rest of the time. You know we can still remember how to drive a car. We don't get lost in watching our breath. But when we sit down to meditate, then initially we're always sort of uh, lassoing the mind and reeling it back in, you know, back to the breath. But after a while, it starts to come back by itself. And discovered that here. Yeah. Well, the reason that we use a meditation object, but there's several, but uh, one thing uh, is that when we sit like this with a meditation object, then the very fact that we have an intention to pay attention to one thing makes us even more aware uh, of the movement of the mind that takes place and the different things that uh, appear in our conscious awareness. And it also, of course, because we're more aware of it, and because we have an object as, as an anchor, then we can uh, very, very easily and very fluidly keep coming back to the same thing and produce the training effect. As I said, you can use many kinds of things as a meditation object. What I like about the breath is that it's always there. You don't have to do anything to make it be there. All you have to do is direct your attention to the sensations that are already taking place so that you become consciously aware of them. Um, And the reason that I like uh, to use the sensations at the nose is because um, usually they're they're, uh, quite clearly discernible, perhaps not quite as 
as gross and obvious a sensation as the rising and falling of your abdomen, but nearly so. They're easy to identify and easy to pay attention to. As your concentration increases, the breath becomes very, very shallow. And you have much greater sensitivity in the region of your nose. And so uh, you'll, more, uh, you, you'll still be able to follow the sensations even when the breath becomes very shallow. But another part of our training is, uh, uh, is in being, is remaining fully alert and fully aware, fully conscious in this process of meditating. Because uh, of the degree of sensitivity that we have in the area of the nose, then there is a lot of detail in that sensation which can serve to help us to know whether our mind is slipping into dullness or whether we'll st we're still fully alert and, and fully aware. Especially when we become very relaxed and the, and the breath becomes very shallow, the sensations are not so, uh, so intense. So this, this exercises that uh, faculty of our mind that, uh, that is the power of conscious awareness and it helps us to, to develop that. So that's why we want to use a meditation object rather than an objectless meditation is because we'll make much more rapid progress in, uh, in training our mind both in stability and in mindfulness by having an object that we can consistently return to. And so the degree that it's reasonable for you to do so, use the sensations of the breath that are produced as the air moves in and out of, of the nose. Um, one question that comes up is how big an area? And very often in talking about this, we'll, we'll refer to the tip of the nose. And a lot of people, that is where they feel the sensations most acutely, is just that, that, that transition point where the air first enters your body. But some people will feel it on their upper lip, and some will feel it inside the nostrils, sometimes deep inside the nose. And it doesn't really matter. Uh, wherever you feel those sensations clearly, that's the place. And we're not talking about uh, an area of any particular size. The area where you feel those sensations very clearly may be no bigger than the end of a pencil eraser, or it may be this big and encompass everything from the inside of your nose right to your upper lip, and that doesn't matter. All we're concerned about is the sensations that are appearing and disappearing in that area that you can use as an object to bring your attention to. Any questions about meditation objects, different kinds of meditation objects, or even the question of why use a meditation object? to using the breath when we were just sitting, my mind kept coming back to the breath. It made me wonder, are there advantages to changing the meditation object from time to time so that it's not just habitual, but, that, but to train your mind to be able to focus on different objects? Well, it's not really <coughs> necessary. You see what will happen... Oh, Can you repeat that question? That was a great question. Yeah, no, okay. <laughs> The question was whether uh, there are advantages to changing the meditation object uh, because it does become habitual and you were very aware of that when sitting there trying to meditate or, or when trying to just sit and be aware without uh, uh, using your usual, usual meditation object. 
it does become habitual. And that in itself is an advantage. The more habitual uh, it becomes, <coughs> then it, it serves a, a variety of functions in the further development of concentration and mindful awareness. Now, I, I can see what the, what the question is and why it's there, that because this becomes habitual, would there not be some advantage to the training and uh, 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 stability of attention, directed attention, uh, awareness, if you practice with other things at other times. It's not really necessary because it's not just a habit. You're actually, uh, you're, you're training those actual mental processes that direct and sustain the t attention. And what you'll find is that as those mental processes are successfully trained, uh, although you have trained them through the habitual use of the breath, that the processes function in the same way no matter what you direct them towards. Um, as a matter of fact, we have a, you know how we conceptualize things and put them in boxes? We have a, a box for, for two mental processes that are called directed and sustained attention. Directed attention is something that we all have and we do all the time. You know that you can direct your, you can voluntarily and intentionally uh, direct your attention to one thing rather than another. Or you can be att paying attention to, to something and uh, decide that uh, this is not a good thing for you to pay attention to and then deliberately move your attention elsewhere, right? Or you can decide that this is something that you want to pay attention to and whenever you find your attention's gone elsewhere, you can direct the attention back. So this is, this is a mental process. It's, it's a, a mental faculty, an ability that exists in us all to control the movement of our attention. And we're training this. Right now, Before you start training, well, that's a little hesitation. Well, a lot of people have been training for a while, so I can't really say that. But in, in the the normal straight state of the untrained mind, we have the ability to direct our attention, but it is not it's not very strong. It's not well trained. And of course, this is one of the things that we discover as soon as we start to meditate. And what will happen is that we'll develop a habit where the mind will spontaneously redirect the attention back to the meditation object over and over again. But lying behind that is the fact that at any time in our life, with anything that we want to uh, direct our attention towards, that the mind is far more responsive in that directing. In the meditation, we'll experience that there are other parts of the mind that can re resist that direction. You know, you, an interesting thought comes up, and you have the intention to redirect your attention back to the sensations of the breath, but you'll experience the desire not to. You'll experience a, a, an attachment to this thought that oh, it would be a lot nicer to just keep thinking this thought. Or sometimes you'll experience a, a, a sort of boredom or restlessness, and uh, the mind will, uh, the, the, the intention, the volitional intention to return to the breath will arise, and some other part of the mind will say, 
oh no, not that again. <laughs> so when we're training this, we're, we're, we're training the mind so that the, the part of the mind that steers the attention, you know, it's like the, the controls the spotlight of the awareness of where it shines, will come to be uh, very strong in terms of its ability to direct in spite of other inclinations that arise. And it will be very responsive to that one part of, uh, of our mind <coughs> that is giving rise to the, the deliberate intention to uh, control the direction. Yes? Um, if I'm going to med meditate just for a short period of time, five minutes, ten minutes, because that's all I have time for, yeah. I, my object is usually not the breath. Mm -hmm. It is um, maybe uh, the sky full of flowers or the ocean uh, totally covered with candles, something that I can get to right, right away and stay on that object. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't, I, I just can't do that with the breath fast enough. In other yeah. words, mm -hmm. it takes me a while to get into the object and the breath so that it's, so that it's, that I'm concentrated on the breath. Well, I, I understand what you're saying, and, and I'll repeat the question because we're making a recording here. You're saying that when you can only meditate for a few minutes, you find that it takes longer to get into the breath, and it's easier to take some other, like a, a visual object or something like that that's immediately available. Uh, that's good. Uh, what, I, what I'm talking about is when you're sitting down and you're going to, you know, I'm going to do a sit for the next half hour or for the next hour or whatever, to consistently use the, the same object has great advantages. But uh, what, uh, but we, but that isn't the only thing that we meditate on. We do walking meditation and we meditate on the sensations of the, of the feet and the legs as we walk. Another part of walking meditation is just being in the present. And we could take a flower that we're looking at or something that we're hearing. There's all kinds of things that we will practice directing and sustaining our attention on. Will we talk about walking meditation? We will talk about walking meditation, yeah. So what you're doing is actually uh, quite consistent. Uh, it, it, it's not really something different than what I'm saying. But there is one thing that I do encourage people to do, which is to practice doing brief periods of meditation, five minutes or even 30 seconds, things like that. And uh, I've always suggested that people, if you're using the sensation of the breath when you sit, that you can direct your attention to the sensation of the breath for 30 seconds while you're waiting your turn to check out in the grocery lines, you know, or, or five minutes if it's a busy Saturday. <laughs> Uh, or waiting for the light to change while you're driving or things like that. So I'm not sure exactly why you would find it more difficult to, to use the breath. But uh, what you're doing, there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. But one of the things that I will be suggesting that you can do to augment your sitting practice is just anytime your mind is free of other concerns, meditate for a few minutes or a few seconds or whatever on something. When, when a thought or a sensation is very overwhelmingly strong when you sit, uh, didn't you say also then to put the attention on that and take that as the object of meditation, like a pain or a disturbing 
experience or whatever, and you have such a force that you cannot get it back to your to your chosen um, to your chosen object. Isn't that better than to go right into it? What's the story? Uh, yes, yeah, so the question is: I, I said when something is very strong, a thought or emotion or a pain or physical sensation, that you can direct your mind towards that. If it's so strong that it, that it is going to draw your attention away anyway, then you can go ahead and take And that is correct. But most of what you're going to, the, by far the vast majority of the things that are going to be uh, tending to distract your attention away from your meditation object are not going to be that strong. You know, so really what I'm talking about here is all of those moment by moment, you know, in the course of, of five minutes, all of those different thoughts and sensations that whenever something takes your attention away, you exercise the directed attention muscle by deliberately, volitionally bringing your attention back. Now I said that sometimes you experience the temptation to stay with a thought. Now that's different than uh, that's different than something that is so, or my, my, what I'm intending to refer to there is different than some thought that is so uh, overwhelmingly powerful that you, uh, that it keeps taking you away. But there's a specific way of taking that thought as an object, which is not the same as indulging in the thinking of the thought. The temptation that I'm talking about, you know, you're remembering some really nice thing that happened earlier today while you're meditating, and you, the temptation that you experience is to continue indulging in that reflection or that thinking. Or maybe you had an argument with somebody and it's a temptation to keep doing that, well, if I'd only said this, or they said, you know, I said, they said, kind of thing. Um, never am I suggesting, no matter how strong it is, that you allow yourself to become caught up in the contents of a thought. Now, if there is a thought, if the thought that has come to mind is something that is, say the thought of, uh, for example, a, uh, a traumatic event that you recently experienced, and your mind just keeps going back to it, but you don't get caught in the thought. What I'm talking about there is you look at it objectively, you know, you separate yourself from the thought and say, well, there's that thought coming up again. And, uh, and, and don't enter into it, but examine it and say, you know, uh, how strong is that thought? Uh, see if it goes away, watch it until it Usually, if it's a verbal thought, might be an image. Uh, if it's an image, then uh, then you investigate the nature of the image. And if it's a verbal thought, then you uh, you know it's the same as you know what it's like when somebody's going on about something and, and you're not really interested in getting into what they're saying. So you just that's how you listen to your own thoughts. <laughs> See, wait for them to go away. You know, a lot of this, a lot of this, as I said last night, it's about understanding the nature of your mind. You are not your thoughts, and you are not your feelings. And our problems come as we do identify, I know I, I am my thoughts, and I am my feelings. 
And this is how they entrap us, and this is how they take us away in meditation. But I was talking about directed and sustained attention. I want to go back to that, okay? So, unless you have something that is so powerful that you need to take it in an objective way as an object, what you're going to do is always be directing your attention back. But of course, that only solves one part of the problem. You direct your attention back to the sensations of the breath, and of course, it's not very long before you know, your mind, your attention's gone somewhere else. And if we, if we examine this, and of course I want you to examine this in the process of meditating, and in, the, and, and in all of the other circumstances in your life, uh, the simple fact is that your mind is, uh, is normally moving from one thing to another. It will stay on any one kind of object for some period of time, longer or shorter. Uh, the more interesting it is, the longer it tends, tends to stay with that, and the less interesting, the shorter the period of time. But what we can discern from this is that there is a mental process that's responsible for determining how long we keep our attention on any one particular thing. So just as directed attention is a mental capacity, a mental faculty, a mental process that naturally exists, that naturally functions, and that we can train, so is sustained attention. There is some non-conscious process responding to a variety of different influences, including your, your deliberate intentions, but to a variety of different influences, which decides when which sustains the attention until it decides to release the attention and allow the attention to move somewhere else. And so we're training that, too. So when you come back to your meditation object, what you also need to do is to train that mental faculty to, to respond primarily to your deliberate intention to stay with it, rather than stay with the breath for one and a half breaths, and then say, okay, free to go, and the attention goes to look for something else. See how got the picture? See how I'm describing it here? Um, these, are, these are not my ideas. These are 2,500-year-old ideas, and they, they work very well as a description of the way our mind works, that we have a capacity for directed attention, we have a capacity for sustained attention, and they're both very trainable. Everybody has them already. Even people with ADD have them already. And they can't be trained. And so that's what we're doing, is we're training them. Uh, one thing that might be useful to do, too, is to just reflect a little bit on attention and awareness and what it's like. Um, you can direct your attention, of course, but don't you also experience that things pop into your awareness? Somebody slams a door, you don't direct your attention to the slamming of the door, it's right there. It enters into your awareness. Then you may, in the next instant, direct your attention towards the whole door slamming issue. Who slammed the door? What are they doing? I shouldn't have done that. Whatever, right? But certainly the sound made its way into your conscious awareness. 
So just, just to help us build some uh, conceptual models of how our mind works. And last night I used the one of, of the attention, uh, conscious awareness, like, like the beam of a flashlight that can be directed here or there, right? And again, have a broader, broader or narrower focus. So when we're talking about directing attention, we're talking about controlling where, where the flashlight beam goes. We're talking about sustaining attention. We're talking about holding it in a particular place. So, uh, and we find that these things happen on the basis of some mechanisms that we're not directly aware of. They also will respond to our intention, and so we can exercise some degree of intentional influence over them. But there's another phenomenon that happens, which is, you know, the, the beam of the light is focused on one thing, that thing, so to speak, and other things jump jump into the beam, say, hey, look at me. Not just the loud slamming of a door, but a thought, you know, a, a thought of your friend's problem, or you don't want to have children, or what are these other things, you know. Here I am, I'm paying attention to this, and all of a sudden, whoop, where did that thought come from, right? That happens all the time. So, a way that we can uh, account for this is that, well, Let's, let's take hearing, for example. Um, right now, in this moment, let's just be silent for a few seconds and li listen to all the things that are to be heard when I stop talking. Now, there's rarely complete silence. As a matter of fact, even when there is very nearly complete silence uh, in, in terms of your environment. There's sound taking place inside your body, or you might have some degree of ringing or buzzing in your ears, or the sound of your heart beating, or even perhaps the sound of your breath. So there are always sounds present. But when you sit down and meditate, certain sounds will be thrust into your conscious awareness into the field of your attention. Uh, the same thing's true with bodily sensations. We could do the same thing we just did with sound. You could pay attention, all of a sudden, you know, all those sensations from every part of your body, you know, from your toes and your, your ears and the top of your head, and there's a huge number of sensations present. You're not aware of most of them, but when you sit down to still the mind, certain ones of those sensations will become thrust strongly into your awareness. Same thing with uh, thought activity. Now, any of you who have meditated for a while will know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you that uh, haven't been meditating so long or haven't been enjoying fairly long periods of stability of attention uh, might not be quite so aware of it, but there is always a variety of thought activity going on in our minds. As, as, you, as the mind becomes quieter, you become more and more aware of this. There is the internal self-talk, the chatter, which usually stands out very strongly. Uh, but in addition to that, there's, there's other kinds of, of thinking that are not necessarily quite so verbal. Uh, there is a 
conceptual processing of the same kind of sensory information that I already talked about, when you hear a sound, there's immediately another part of your mind which attempts to identify it and label it, even if you're not particularly interested in it. Your mind is rarely satisfied to accept a sound as just a sound. It's going to make an attempt to identify and label it, you know, and as with any sensation or any, anything that you uh, see in any other way. So another way, a helpful way of thinking about the mind is that there is a part of the mind that is normally devoted to monitoring and processing auditory information, and another part of the mind that is responsible for uh, monitoring uh, the various kinds of bodily input, tactile information, temperature, pressure, pain, things like that. Likewise with taste and smell, uh, and, and with sight. Of course, in meditation, most of the time we have our eyes closed. There's a good reason for that, but, and I'll come to that. But, and then there's another part of the mind that we could call, it's equivalent to these other senses, called the mind sense. And it, it's continuously processing information in all kinds of different ways. Um, and one way to illustrate the, 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 the mind processing aspect of this is how often have you had the experience that you have a problem, you don't know the answer to it, you stop thinking about it, you do something else, and then an idea pops in your mind of how you can deal with it. It's a pretty common experience. As a matter of fact, it's not only a common experience, it's something that is uh, outstandingly noted in the history of science. You know, any of you who have ever taken science courses, chemistry or physics or things like that, your textbook is always going to tell you about, you know, those great discoveries that were made when, uh, you know, like Kekulé and the, the structure of the benzene ring, he ate dinner, he sat down, has a nap, has a vision of monkeys in the ring, you know, each holding the tail of the other end. And he'd been working on this problem for months, literally, trying to figure out how these atoms could have been hooked together. To, to create the kind of molecule that he knew was there and popped into his mind. But what it illustrates is that there is a part of your mind that is doing this kind of thinking, this, this information processing activity all of the time. So then, if we have five physical senses, we can just say, okay, well, they're fairly distinct from each other, so uh, we can posit that there is uh, a whole division of the mind that's associated with each one of these five senses, and then a sixth division of the mind that does all this information processing. And they're all doing their thing all the time. And they're doing it at a level that we are not directly conscious of. Take, for example, the sensations in your body right now. You can be directly conscious of in, any of these sensations but you might not have been. Before I mention it, you might not have been aware at all of the sensations in your left foot. But as soon as you direct your attention, whoop, there they are. Okay. And when you're sitting, of course, and there's a sudden twinge in your knee, then that part of your mind that is been, has been all along monitoring and processing all this bodily sense of information has made a decision that, hey, this is important, and it's stuck it into the... the 
scope of your conscious awareness, stuck it into the field of your attention. Hey, look at this. So you see, see the model I'm giving you here? Attention moves, but wherever your attention happens to be, um, there are these other independent, and we can sort of generally describe the mind as having six of these, these other independent uh, mental operations with their own job to do, and when they decide something's important enough to be, uh, for you to be consciously aware of it, you are consciously aware of it. It comes right into, into your attention. What do you think of that? Any comment? Does it fit with your experience? Mm-hmm. Is a pretty good description of, of how your mind works? Yes. I, I typically use, <coughs> use earplugs mm-hmm. uh, so that I don't hear any distracting sounds. Well, we could, we can go to a lot of lengths to try to uh, remove any sorts of distractions. Be in a completely dark room where you know, a blindfold or goggles and create a soundproof environment or put earplugs in things like that. But, and, and, and that may be helpful if we are particularly prone to that kind of distraction. But what's better is if we can train our mind in such a way that we don't need to do that. Now, when you get to the point where you can sit at the corner of Broadway and Campbell and <laughs> enter into deep meditation, then, you, then, you know, no need for earplugs or anything like that ever again. Uh, you don't necessarily have to aspire to that degree of concentration. <laughs> but it's possible, though. It, it is possible. Um, the main thing that we're going to be doing in meditating, we are going to close our eyes. You know, of, of the five senses, the visual sense is, is so powerful and so dominant for us that uh, the easiest way to deal with it, it's, it's convenient that it has eyelids and you can just shut it off by closing your eyes. So we usually meditate with our eyes closed because that removes a huge part of distracting sensory information. Uh, you don't have to meditate with your eyes closed. As a matter of fact, once you've developed a certain degree of skill in meditation, it's a very good idea to start practicing meditation with your eyes open. Is once you once you have a, a, a basis for some skill in uh, directing and sustaining your attention, then you can uh, open your eyes and unfocus your eyes and, and learn to practice that that way. But yes, we do usually try to find a quiet environment to. Avoid as much as possible external noises, but don't go to don't go to any excessive lengths for that, because actually the sounds that serve as distractions serve a purpose too. Uh, they exercise your ability to uh, remain focused or to direct attention. They also allow you to examine the processes that take place in your mind, because when a dog barks, there's only the sound. The, the dog, the dogness and the barkingness of it are something that your mind supplies. And you can see that cross happening. That's what I was talking about. That wherever there's a sensation, the mind tries to put an identification and a label to it. And 
uh, it is interesting and valuable to actually see that process taking place. So don't go to too great lengths to eliminate all of the information from, from the external environment. And there's really nothing that you can do about bodily sensations. There's no, there's no equivalent of earplugs for cutting off bodily sensations, right? Or at least I don't know of any. They're just there. What you do want to do is to find the best posture for you to sit, the best way for you to sit, so that bodily sensations create the least distraction and keep fine-tuning the way that you sit as much as necessary so that uh, you have eliminated all of those bodily sources of, of pain, discomfort, and distraction that can be easily and readily eliminated. You don't have to sit cross-legged, you can sit on a chair. If you have hip or knee problems or something like that, you, or back problems, you should definitely do that. And there's many different ways of sitting sitting on the floor cross-legged. So tune it up so that there's a minimum of distraction, but you're still going to have bodily sensations. There's no, no equivalent to earplugs for that. So what actually happens in the process of meditation is, uh, first of all, we train ourselves not to be so easily distracted by these sensations that come up, and likewise by the thoughts. The sixth sense, of course, is the one that delivers thoughts and emotions and images and memories to uh, our awareness. And so what we're doing is we're practicing not being drawn away by those things. So when you put your attention on your meditation object, you're not trying to stop those things. You're not trying to stop your mind from thinking. You're not trying to, quote, shut out sounds and bodily sensations. What you're trying to do is to remain continuously aware of the meditation object. I mean, one thing that I think that's obvious, but it's worth stating, is that you can't really pay attention to two things, uh, to, uh, to fully pay attention to two things at once. You know, to use the light analogy, there's only one thing that can be in the center of being of light at a time. And so what you're trying to do is to keep your meditation object at the center, at the focus of your attention, at the focus of your conscious awareness. And you're not trying to get rid of the other stuff. You just let it be. Let all the different thoughts, all the things that you experienced when we sat there for a few minutes, let them be. But whenever the attention starts to move towards one or another of those, or whenever one or another of those draws the attention away. You recognize that and you bring it back. That's what you want to do. And whenever you're paying pay attention to your meditation object and something happens like a door slams and that enters into your conscious awareness, what you want to do is to let it arise and pass away, but you try to stay with the meditation object. Whenever there's a sharp twinge that comes from your knee that that enters your awareness and you let it pass away without it grabbing your attention and taking it with it. Uh, when 
motor sensations come up, maybe the twinge in your knee turns into an ache. You try to keep your focus on the meditation object and let the ache in the knee stay here in the penumbra of your of, of the white of the mind, off to the side somewhere and let it be. Whenever you feel it pulling the attention towards it, you just bring the attention back. Now, what will happen over time when you become very skilled at keeping your attention, in other words, when the faculty of sustained attention becomes very strong, but you're very good at staying with your meditation object and not being distracted by these sensations and yet by these thoughts, what's going to happen, and this is why it's useful to think of it as being six other parts of your mind that are trying to attract attention or to put something into the field of attention. Those six other parts of your mind will get tired of trying. Ignored long enough, they stop trying so hard, and then it starts to become very easy to remain still and concentrated. The more successful, the longer, the more successfully you can ignore those things, then what happens is there's fewer things to ignore. Your thinking mind produces fewer thoughts. You know, uh, the, the part of the mind that uh, that uh, involves thinking also involves feeling, and so there will be fewer distracting feelings and emotions as well. The auditory mind will produce will there will be much less of auditory information that ever even enters into the periphery of your awareness, let alone becomes thrust into the center of it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I sometimes I am um, trying to, to find out or figure out, um, let's say, why I say that or react it or think strong this way or try to find a way out of situation, mm -hmm. the best way, whatever is the problem. So sometimes I am, uh, I put a pencil and paper near me and I'm concentrating only on, and I ask my question, okay, um, why it happened, or what I should do next time, or how I get out of it. Mm -hmm. And I try to concentrate. Um, and a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times, uh, the process in my mind, in it, in a way that instead of getting quietness, actually it's like my mind give me all kind of sources or sentences and I just put on a list. And sometimes it helped me to figure out why or what. Is it also will be one of the, and I haven't read, it just I mm -hmm. somehow came to this to myself, maybe, so question is, is that exist situation, um, in a situation like this, there's any teaching or what I'm doing, is that maybe on the way of better concentration? Or okay, well, uh, if I understand you correctly, you're saying sometimes you have problems and you use your meditation to come up with solutions for the problems. Right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, yeah, there's actually a name for that. It's called analytical meditation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
usually we need to have already developed some pretty good concentration because analytical meditation is nothing other than thinking about our problems. Uh, unless we have a degree of concentration and awareness that becomes a really productive analytical process. What most, what most of us do most of the time with our problems is we recycle the same thoughts over and over and over and over again. And it doesn't bring us to any new solution. Uh, and when we decide to think about our problems, the, the common situation is, okay, I'm, I'm going to sit down and think about my problem, is that rather than focusing in a very analytical way on the components of the problem, the mind begins to, it's to, do, to do its usual thing. It, it gets into blaming somebody for why I have this problem in the first place, or fantasizing about you know, how things could be different, or how they will be different once I solve this problem, or uh, escaping from the discomfort of the problem by thinking about something more pleasant. I can tell just some people recognizing this description here. But, um, but if you develop a certain amount of concentration and a certain amount of introspective awareness, then you can use meditation as a powerful way to, to problem solve. It's called analytical meditation in that case. Whether you're using it for problem solving or to gain a deeper understanding of something that you want to, that you need to understand. Uh, you need the concentration so, and, and the mindful awareness, introspective awareness, so that your mind's not drifting off into the sidetracks. And so when you recognize that your mind is just processing the same thing over and over again, then you can stop it. But, uh, uh, yes? Could you explain the difference between the analytic contemplate, uh, analytic uh, meditation and uh, contemplation? Uh, they're basically, the, they're, they're very similar, they're very, very closely related. They involve the discursive activities of the mind. Uh, I think, I'd really like to stay on the topic of the meditation training that we're trying to master here. I'll point out to you that it's typical experience that once you develop a certain degree of concentration, uh, you, you can use your concentration very easily in this way. So let's just leave it that uh, when, you, when you've developed some concentration and mindful awareness that that analytical meditation and contemplation are practices that you can take up very fruitfully at a certain stage. And we'll talk about that when we, when the conversation progresses to that particular stage, okay? But right now, I'm still back at, you know, okay, you're, you're either a brand new meditator or you're somebody who's been meditating for a while, but you still have the situation where you forget what you're doing and your mind wanders. There's a lot of other things going on in your mind. And so the picture I've been trying to paint for you is, is that there is some very, very limited part of your mind that is generating the intention to meditate and the intention to uh, uh, keep the attention focused on a particular object. There are a variety of other mental processes which can either aid this or conflict with this. So the, uh, 
these major divisions of your mind that are associated with the biophysical senses and the mind sense are essentially going to be in conflict with this. Each of them is processing the information in its own domain, and whenever it thinks it has something that you should be paying attention to, that is going to be either thrust into your awareness or else there is going to be some sort of signal demanding that the attention be redirected to this other potentially important and interesting thing. But you have, and you have to have, with a, with a mind like this, otherwise it, it would be chaos, you have, you have to have the ability to direct and sustain attention. Otherwise, your attention would be constantly moving around from this, this sound to that, that feeling to that thought to, to, you know, with no control at all. It's bad enough as it is. But you do have these faculties of directed and sustained attention. Sustained attention, it's an unconscious process. You don't, all you do is formulate the intention to sustain your attention. But the mental process that keeps the attention on a particular object for a period of time is functioning in the back room of your mind, so to speak. If you're lucky, it follows your instructions, and if you're not, it doesn't follow them as well as you'd like to. And what we want to do is to train it so that it does follow your instructions. But, you, but whatever that part is of your mind that's responsible for deciding how long the attention should be sustained on something, it's responding to a lot of different factors. Well, in the way it normally functions in your daily life, it's however important this thing that you're paying attention to seems to be in terms of how it contributes to your happiness or what degree of a threat it might uh, pose to you, or to whatever degree it's novel, unexplained, and needs to be deciphered and evaluated. Follow me on that one? So, uh, naturally, uh, something that is evaluated as being potentially valuable and useful to you, or to you uh, then attention is sustained on it longer. But sustained attention can also respond to deliberate intention. So you formulate the intention to pay attention to your meditation object. And you direct your attention to the meditation object, and it's sustained there for a particular period of time, and then this this particular faculty, faculty says, time, time enough, releases the attention, and the attention goes to whatever else is calling upon it. And so then there's the conflict part of it, there's all the other things that are calling upon your attention. So you need to do things to cause your attention to be sustained longer. So you take your meditation object and you try to examine it, investigate it. You engage with it more fully. And this will help you to stay with it for longer uh, longer periods of time. You set yourself the challenge. Can I notice exactly when the in-breath begins and exactly when it ends, and so forth. How long is the pause between the in-breath and the out-breath? And how long is the pause between the out-breath and the in-breath? And are they the same length, or are they different? 
And are they the same as they were in the last breath, or are they changing? There's all these different ways that you you create the challenge that helps uh, provide a, a, a reason for the attention to be sustained longer. And this is all coming out of deliberate intention. So the net effect is that is that sustained attention becomes trained to respond to intention. In the same way that directed attention comes to respond to uh, intention. Now, the other thing that's happening here, though, is before sustained attention is so well-trained that you never lose awareness of the meditation object, your attention will go to something else, and if it stays with that other thing long enough, the meditation object will be forgotten. And it can go to something else briefly and then come right back. But what inevitably happens quite frequently is that it goes to something else and it lingers there too long, just long enough so that uh, the, uh, the fact that you were supposed to be paying attention to your breath disappears from short-term memory. So now you're engaged with whatever it is that took you away. It doesn't need to be long, just long enough to forget the breath. And then if that's not that interesting, it may trigger another thought or something else. And then this leads to mind-wandering. So this distraction is followed by forgetting if the distraction lasts long enough. And the forgetting leads to mind-wandering, and the mind goes to one thing, to another, to another. But a very interesting thing happens, and it always happens, is that at some point, you suddenly realize, oh, I haven't been meditating. I haven't been attending to my meditation object. Did you, the volitional person that you think you are, did you make that happen? Anybody here think that when that happens, you made it happen? No. No. And can you make it happen if you try? No. It came out of nowhere. You were lost in a thought. I mean, totally lost in a thought. You or maybe a series of thoughts, or a feeling, an emotion, or whatever it is. You were lost in it. And then all of a sudden, you woke up to the reality of the present moment what you did. You came into the present that, oh, I'm sitting here supposed to be meditating and I've been lost in this other thought. So here's the question, how can we make that? This is a good thing, right? Boy, I wish this had happened five minutes ago. <laughs> and that's the way that we should regard this when it happens, is, is, oh, wow, I wish this had happened sooner. <laughs> oh, wow, I wish this would happen more often. I mean, that's it. it's what we want to happen, right? So long as so long as it happens that we're going to forget the meditation object, the sooner we realize it, the better. And that is the most important thing about that moment. Unfortunately, there's a tendency uh, to, because you have formulated the intention to observe your meditation object, and suddenly you realize that for the last 10 minutes you've been doing something else. You get angry at yourself. There's annoyance. Oh no, not again. And this, you don't want to do this. It's not going to help at all. Because what you do want to do is to 
is to appreciate what has happened. That some unknown process that you cannot control has brought you into uh, into present, wakeful, alert awareness of what's going on. And all you want is, you know, please, I want more of this. Right? So appreciate it. Savor it. That's reinforce it positively. It, too, is another mental process operating at a subconscious level according to its own conditioning and determinants. And so what you want to do is to contribute to its conditioning and determinants so that it does what you want. So you do that by positive reinforcement. And you avoid... In, and the timing is crucial. The timing is really crucial because, aha, I woke up to mind wandering. If you hit yourself over the head in that moment because your mind wandered, it sends the wrong message to that very mental process that made you aware of it. You know, that mental process says, says uh-oh, <laughs> look what happens when we, when we do this. The... So then, by feeling good about it, positively reinforcing it, and recognizing it for what it is, what, what is this moment? It is being present. It is being awake. And awake in a sense that you were not awake when you were lost in a thought, right? So what's most important about this is those qualities. You're aware of what's happening in your own mind in the present moment. So it's a kind of introspective awareness that you lacked when all of your conscious awareness was focused on the content of a thought, on the process of a thought. Now your awareness is turned around and you're seeing what your mind is doing. Not only that, you're seeing that what your mind is doing is not what you had intended it to be doing. You're seeing that appropriateness of what it's doing. And this is what, uh, this is where you would like to be all the time. You would like to always have this kind of awareness of what's going, what's going on in your mind and whether it's appropriate or not. Would you not? Would that not be useful in daily life? Yeah. Question. Uh, who's waking you up? Who? Who is waking you up? Or what is a train mind, or it's some from universe, some forces or something. And also, you've been doing meditation for 40 years, from what I understand, right? Not quite, but getting there. Uh, where are you in this process? How long you can stay without wandering, and how fast you bring yourself back? Okay, well, the first, uh, the first question, you, know, you say you're saying, who is waking you up? This is uh, that's a very good question. If there's there's no, nobody out there or somewhere else that's waking you up. It is one part of your mind that is bringing your mind to this state of wakeful awareness. It's all happening within the same collection of mental processes. What is waking you up is one mental process amongst many. Okay? That's what I told them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. And 
this is really important to realize too, because uh, we we think of our mind as one thing, and then we get frustrated with our mind because it doesn't do what we want, or we feel ourselves divided against ourselves and things like that. Uh, and and this can be emotionally and intellectually confusing. It's emotionally confusing as an experience when we think that way. It's intellectually confusing if we try to analyze it and say, well. Who's doing what? And what, what do I really want to do? You know, and if you're meditating and you come into an internal conflict and you say, what do I really want to do? Then that's a, that's a confusing place to put yourself in. Whereas you recognize that you consist of, of uh, a, a large variety of different mental processes with different functions to fulfill and different agendas. And that some are cooperating, but some are competing. The other thing about where am I in this? Well. Uh, you know, I, I have, uh, well, let me put it this way, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't take anywhere near the amount of time that I've been practicing to succeed in mastering all of these stages, okay? And when you, when you do this, you'll find this yourself, that you, uh, if you, if you proceed stepwise, that in a relatively short period of time, you'll come to the point where when you sit down to meditate, you never experience uh, forgetting and mind-wandering. This is the first goal I want you to set for yourself, is to get to that place where you, where you rarely, if ever, forget your meditation object, and you almost never have mind-wandering. And that won't take you very long. And, and you know, when I sit down to meditate, yes, I, I don't. I use my breath as an object most of the time. I do a variety of other meditation practices as well. But that is always the main, that's always the core practice. That then I do. how you can feel, you were talking yesterday about eventually after you go through all these 10 processes and so forth, mm -hmm. you will feel joy and uh, peace and all this that's good right, feeling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you right now, of course, I assume you got to this place. So while you do concentration on your breath, mm -hmm. um, do you at the same time have those feelings? It's kind of going together? Yes, and depending on exactly the kind of practice that I'm doing on a given occasion, certain ones will be very predominant. So, any other questions? Yes. Yeah, you. <coughs> this this connection between the intention and the sustainability of the of the uh, of the attention. It feels to me that the sustainability of the attention is really uh, dependent on the power of the intention itself. How you how you build up on the intention itself. Is that the mental process that you're talking about? Okay, the question is, it seems to you that the sustainability of intention is dependent upon the strength of the intention itself. And is that what I'm talking about? Actually, uh, there is a relationship there that your intention does become stronger and clearer. And that does play a role. But there is, but I'm, I'm speaking as, 
I'm speaking in terms of there being a part of your mind that is always and normally responsible for deciding how long attention will be sustained on any particular thing. And it becomes extremely responsive to intention. So uh, although strength of intention is an important part of bringing that about, the end result is that you don't have to muster up some powerful, willful intention to produce the result. Okay. And as a matter of fact, uh, in general, it's not so much about willpower, which strength of intention can easily be heard as meaning willpower. It's not really, it's more, it had, the strength of intention has far more to do with consistency than any sort of force. Because your intention can waver. Your intention can be overwhelmed by some other intention or be diluted and be in conflict with some other intention. So it's really the consistency. before and I don't know. Well, hopefully that won't happen anymore. So. Oh, is that I was just thinking what's helpful for me when you talked about it before as far as these different mental processes and how you know, they're kind of divided like that and all that is talking about the cheetahs or talking about them in terms of like the, the term cheetahs. Um, in terms of which? The term cheetahs. Cheetahs. that right now, if you could remind me, of, if you could bring up the same topic a little bit later on. I, I've had people sitting here for quite a while, and I'd, I'd like to us to take a break and do a little meditation. And also, I think it might come in more naturally a little bit farther along in the discussion. <coughs> 